After the Mixtape with Scott, a podcast that weaves together personal stories of economists and an oral history of the last 50 years of economics. I'm your host, Scott Cunningham. And through these conversations, we're building an emerging image of the diverse fields, eras, departments, and individuals who have helped shape this discipline. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with a friend of mine, Joseph Price, professor of economics at Brigham Young University. Our conversation was filled with insights about family, both Joseph's own family and the broader concept that he calls the human family. This focus on family has inspired much of his research, even going back to his job market paper at Cornell, including his latest work in which he links together census records uh, using machine learning to create a giant genealogy of what he calls the human family. Joseph's passion for his research and the thoughtfulness, thoughtfulness with which he approaches his work made this episode a joy to, to do and a joy to listen to him. So don't forget to like, share, and follow the podcast, The Mixtape with Scott, for more fascinating stories from the world of economists. Great. Well, it is a pleasure to have on the, the podcast this week um, a guy I've known, one of my, my first people I ever met when I got a real job, uh, Joseph Price. Joe, thanks for being on the, on the podcast. Well, thanks, Scott. Uh, could you introduce, for those that are listening, could you tell us your name, your job title, and the organization that writes your paycheck? Yeah, sure. I'm Joe Price. I'm a professor of economics at Brigham Young University. Brigham Young. How long have you been there? There 16, 17 years. 17 years, 16 or something. That sounds like me at, at Baylor. So, okay. I have an icebreaker kind of get yeah. started. If you could have dinner with any three people from history, who would they be and why? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, for me personally, I'd, I'd love to have dinner with Jesus. Um, and then within economics, I don't know, I'm just really interested in some of the I mean, Adam Smith would be up there. I'm just kind of curious about him as a person. And yeah. Uh, and then I, honestly, I'd love to have dinner with Alan Kruger, to be honest. And so, yeah. If you have a, if you have a dinner with Adam Smith, Jesus and Alan Kruger, and you don't invite me to it, I'm going to, I'm going to remember that. I'm going to make yeah. a note of that. Uh, you're not invited to my uh, famous people dinner. Okay. All right, that's great. So, um, all right, well, why don't we get started? So why don't you tell us where, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? I grew, I, I was born in Utah just while my dad was going to college, but I grew up in Oregon. Mm. Uh, just had a really awesome upbringing. I lived in a, a neighborhood that had a big field in the backyard and we played football and baseball all the time. And I had a, a teacher that taught me to love math pretty early on, just mm. let me kind of flourish in that area. I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And then just in high school, I really enjoyed, you know, taking classes and doing sports and having friends. And uh, I don't know, just like kind of a good place to be creative and just try out a lot of things. Yeah. What sports did you play as a kid? I did. Um, I mean, I, I did everything, but in high school, I did cross country swimming and track and then mm. a little bit of tennis. I played baseball and football and basketball. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so you had this really important, yeah. So what was it like? What was the teacher situation that they sort of encouraged you with math and it stuck? Really high in math early on. They didn't know what to do with me. And I just had this math teacher that brought a parent in and she just taught me one-on-one -on -one. and she taught me algebra when I was in fifth grade. And it just oh. blew my mind. And I remember struggling with it because uh, she'd say like, okay, in this problem, A is equal to seven. And then in a different problem, A would be some other number. And I don't know why my, my brain had a hard time with that. But once I made that breakthrough, I just, I found math to be just so interesting and uh, expansive. Mm, mm, wow. So did you, so you, you sort of stuck. So she, it was a male or a female? It was a female. It was just a mom of a friend. So, so Mrs. Pound would come in and uh, help me with math. And Wow. Wow. So, well, so what kind of high school did you become? High school student, did you feel like you became? I mean, I took the honors classes and I love sports. Um, the neat thing is I actually went back and taught math to an advanced group of kids at that same school where I'd had yeah. the same experience. And uh, the, the high school and the elementary were right next to each other. So I just walk over there. Uh, I don't know. My high school gave me a lot of freedom. I remember like, like they just gave me a period off and I'd go and like teach math. Oh, wow. Yeah. You would go teach math in high school to the other 
school? Yeah, I'd, I'd walk over to the elementary school and then I'd had a, the, the, my fifth grade teacher just gave me like five kids and I would just teach math to these five kids. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. It, that they're like, yeah, you're, you're going to be, a, you're going to be a professor. You can't, you can't turn it off. You're that, that must've been a good sign of where you were going. So what do you love about that? What do you, what do you like about teaching those kids? I always wanted to be a teacher. To be honest, I wanted to be an elementary school teacher. Mm. And there was just one day my dad's like, Hey, look, did you know elementary school teachers don't make a lot of money? Uh-huh. And, and he knew I probably wanted to have a big family. And he just said, you know, life will be a little tough. It'll be tougher if you're an elementary school teacher. So there's, you know, there's part of me that kind of wishes the economics was such that the, that I could have been an elementary school teacher, mm. the same kind of lifestyle I have as a professor, but you know, that's not the world we live in. So obviously yeah. I love being a teacher. And so. What do you love about being a teacher? Just love it when people discover something new. I love, I love seeing in someone's eyes when they just light up with uh, a new discovery. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Right. Well, so that was my next question. Your early aspirations or dreams before you went to college, was it to be a teacher? Was that the, is that what you're telling me before college? Or a little bit. I, I mean, once I realized that I couldn't make money as an elementary school teacher, then I, I, I lived in Intel country. So I grew up in Hillsborough, Oregon, lots of Intel fabs all around. Oh. So at that point I decided I was going to be a chemical engineer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Seemed like a pretty safe bet in terms of making money. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my real dream, I told my mom early on is I wanted to have an idea factory and I would just come up with ideas and then all my workers would like implement my ideas. I think at the time I thought it, it meant I would be an inventor, but actually the way I do economics today actually looks exactly like the way I described my mom. Right, right. Yeah, you are an idea making machine. That that You called that one, huh? called that one right. Um, so where do you end up going to college? I went to Brigham Young University. I applied, I actually only applied to two schools. I applied to MIT and BYU. And I got kind of the final rounds at MIT. I remember even interviewing with alumni at MIT. Wow. Just loving the questions he asked me. Um, I mean, I was disappointed not to get in to MIT, but mm-hmm. you know, BYU turned out to be a fantastic place mm-hmm. to do college. You, you were, I guess, so yeah, that you're now I'm realizing that the math uh, skills that you had were pretty substantial. You, you, you really probably were impressive as a high school student within the context of my high school, I think if, you know, if I'd been at some of the high schools in Palo Alto or other places, it probably would have pushed me even harder, but within the context of what my high school offered, it was an amazing experience. Okay. Okay. Wait, wait, you said Palo Alto. Does that mean you were in California? I was just trying to think of other, I was just trying to think of other places where kids grow up where it's not surprising for a kid to take like, or even here in Provo, Utah, like uh, one of our students, Patrick Turley had like minored in math while he was still in high school. And so it, just wasn't in the on the radar at my high school it wasn't kind of something you thought about doing yeah 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 it's fu- it's funny how much random stuff uh you know you get you you get on these tracks and there's a lot of randomness to it um just based on what what opportunities you have well so you go to Brigham Young so tell me about when you get there what's it like I did one I did one quarter right before my mission loved it um and then I came back and I, I, I got engaged that first semester after my, my mission. So I was kind of like a married student as a freshman, sophomore. So uh-huh. I felt like that always kept me pretty grounded. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I just was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. So I took an accounting class. I took a chemical engineering class. I took an economics class. Mm-hmm. The, the economics class with Dr. Curl just blew my brain. It just, uh, I loved every bit of it. I would call my dad every night and tell him what I was learning. Um, but yeah, that's when I fell in love with economics. Is it? In that what, why'd you take that class? Was it required? I mean, I liked it. Actually, I had a really good economics teacher in high school. So when oh. I was thinking of what I wanted to do, like chemical engineering was my declared major, and yeah. it's probably like my default option. Mm-hmm. But I was curious about accounting. I'd had friends do that. It seemed like a safe job. And then my high school economics teacher, uh, Rocky Harris, was my favorite teacher ever. And mm-hmm. we traveled to Salaki together. We built a business together. I mean, it was just. He just taught economics in a really cool way. And so mm. at least oh, I had it as part of the choice that yeah. you built a business together as a yeah, high it school student. It was through junior achievement. It's this kind of like economics program for high school students. And we sell, we sold these little rings that you could press with your hand yeah. uh, that we imported from Slovakia. What do you mean a ring that you press with your hand? What is that? Is what? A rubber ring. 
Yeah. And you put it in your hand and you squeeze it and it strengthens your muscles by squeezing it. Oh yeah. I remember those things. Yeah. So I'd seen it at REI and I looked on the back and it said Slovakia. And so we were doing a trip to Slovakia. So I just found out who the manufacturer was and we just directly imported it and repackaged it ourselves. Yeah. Did you make any money? Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Stick to the, yeah. Good economists aren't necessarily good at, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're better at drive. A lot of us are better at driving the first order conditions than, uh, than making money. Um, okay. So, so then, so you, so you, you have this positive experience with this teacher in high school, but you still are saying, but I'm going to do chemistry, but you decide to take this econ class. It wasn't no. required. No, I, I mean, it might've been required, but it, I basically, the accounting econ and chemical engineering was my semester to say, what am I going to major in? Yeah. Uh, and the craziest thing is at the end of the semester, the chemical engineering department gave me a, like a really small scholarship, like $600 a semester. Mm-hmm. And I remember I knew I loved economics, but that $600 weighed so heavy on me because I was so, I was just young and married and poor that I almost stayed in the chemical engineering major so I could keep my $600. $600. <laughs> You're like the opportunity cost. Yeah. It's like, I'm paying to be an econ major. It's the... That's how they, that's how they get you in chemical engineering. They, they make you pay to leave. Um, that's great. So, but then you have this class, what's this class and who was that professor? It was a Jim curl. It it was a classroom with 800 people in it. Wow. I know. And just, uh, just every lecture just changed my world. Just made me think about things in a different way. Um, yeah, he was a master teacher. Just, just loved every bit of it. So Uh, what was the principles? It was a principles course, like a micro macro in one, mm. one class. You remember which book he used? He used his own book, actually. Oh, okay. Was he yeah, a long it, was time? Like a, it was just like a, like a paperback version of his book that we would, you know, it was like a one-off kind of book just for BYU. Oh. But, oh. Uh, so yeah. what do you remember really like getting impacted by from his class that was different from the high school teacher's class? Like why, what, what took you off there? way more it was a lot more rigorous mm. and it wasn't like it was very math heavy but it like all the things we use in math it it was it was there and it or it, it honestly it felt to me like engineering but for society mm-hmm. how do you structure society so that the good things happen that to mm-hmm. me seemed like an engineering problem um, mm. but it was so relevant at like every single lecture i felt like there was something in my life that mm. it informed um and then the last lecture um he gave a lax lecture that just it absolutely changed me. Um, it was actually about John Rawls, the um, veil of ignorance, uh, the theory of justice. And it just, it just made sense. And so, so I actually ended up volunteering at the soup kitchen for a whole year after that lecture, like literally that lecture, like changed me. And the next day I went and signed up. Wait, um, can you, for the sake of the listener who doesn't know what that, the veil of ignorance is, can you sort of describe what it was and what it did to you, why it had such a big effect. I mean, his question was really just about what's the appropriate level of redistribution that we should have in the world. Hmm. And, this, and the thought experiment is imagine before coming to earth, you didn't know what, if you're going to be born rich or poor, like mm-hmm. how much inequality would you want to have in the world? Hmm. And all of us wrote that down on a piece of paper. And, you know, I think I wrote four to one or three to one or some small number. And then he showed us the numbers that actually exist in the world. And used this idea of, how to be a Rawlsian. And I, I don't know, it just really connected with me. And it just made me realize I, I had a lot. Um, and so I felt like maybe I could give a little bit of what I had to people who maybe had less. And so right. I would do breakfast at a soup kitchen where homeless people would come in. Mm. It was just weird that like economics, which is usually viewed as selfish, actually made me a very unselfish person. So I, I love the ability to combine right. like engineering with, uh, with, uh, compassion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. It's this issue of it's, yeah, that, that Rossian thought experiment, you know, so I've never seen anybody do that in class. So he asked you to write down what you, what's he saying, what you think inequality is or what you think the tails are. Put yourself behind the veil of ignorance. Yeah. And then write down the rule you would, you would choose. Like, so give, would you one. write down? I, I wrote down maybe four to one. Four to one means what? Uh, like the, the top, the top five percentile would be making four times as much as the bottom five percentile. I see. And what, what, it, what, what did he say? I can't, I don't know. It's like, like a million. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, 
I mean, mean, even within the US, it's like, he says, look, uh, well, he'd ask us like, what what part of the income distribution do you think we're from? And all of us said middle class. And then he said, well, if you think you're from the middle class, then your parents must make this much money. (laughs) Right. Right. Realize that we were all from the, we're all from the upper class. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So that had a big effect on you. So you start thinking about inequality and redistribution questions. Whereas before that, what were you thinking economics might be? Because you really loved it. And in high school, it's all about like supply and demand, the lemonade stand, investment, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of like business decisions. Right. Definitely part of economics. But I think what I fell in love with is the fact that economics might relate to child development or it might relate to education. How did you get into that? What brought you into that question? Well, I had kids. I mean, and I was working, I was also working at a high school at the time. I was teaching, I, uh, I was teaching math at the local high school here. And then they gave me 10 kids to mentor, mm. failing several classes, doing poorly. And I would go do home visits. And so part of my Rawlsian mindset also was like, well, how do we help kids that are at the bottom of the income distribution mm. better? And it, it made me start thinking that maybe we have to start even earlier and earlier. Like, mm. like by the time they were in high school, I just felt like so hard to, to move the needle. Mm. So that got me really interested in early childhood stuff. Yeah, that's really interesting. The 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 core questions about, you know, overall well-being and redistribution starts making you think about uh, you know, even your, the use of your time and where you allocated your time. Yeah, I want to I want to talk about that in a minute because that's one of my favorite papers that you you've written. I've told you that. So so you you have this incredible experience, and that basically takes you out of chemical engineering. At that point, I'm out of chemical engineering. I still didn't know if economists made money, so right. so I took I took econ 380 with Mark Showalter, and he would have us read articles from the Journal of Economic Perspectives. Mm. I saw this title of an article that said uh, economists make a lot of money, just don't tell anyone about it. Right. And so, like the article, and it just it was like uh, you know it was kind of like a Siegfried and stock paper that just basically posted salaries for assistant professors, associate professors and professors. Yeah. And it, it blew my mind because I had in mind like what a high school teacher makes. Right. That was kind of my reference point. And then these numbers were really big. Right. And so at that point I was like, wow, I can, I can love economics and I can actually like support a family. Right. And so then that's when I really decided I wanted to be a, a professor. Right. 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 Yeah, so it all kind of kind of started coming together. So then you graduate. Who was there anybody else at, at Brigham Young that had a big yeah, effect on you? Yeah, probably Lars Left. I mean, by far Lars Lefgren had the biggest effect on me. Lars Lefgren? Yeah. Cause I took 380 econ 380 with Mark Showalter and I really wanted to be his research assistant. Mm. Now keep in mind I'd only taken two econ classes at that point. So of course, you know, nobody's gonna hire you as a research assistant. Uh, so but I approached him and Mark said, I don't have any positions at the moment, but there's a brand new person. Named Lars Lefgren, maybe he'll give you a shot. Mm-hmm. So I go and knock on Lars's door and he hires me and has me do like pretty basic stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was his research assistant for two years and mm. it just, it gave me so much exposure to research. There's probably maybe six or seven really important papers he worked on at that time. And I got to, you know, be part of the conversations and, and see the whole process play out. Uh, him mm-hmm. and Brian Jake were doing a lot of work together. And yeah. so it's kind of really neat to just be part of that. And yeah. Yeah. So, did, so what, so that's interesting. I mean, did you feel like while you were at Brigham Young this, so when I say something like mentor versus teacher, you know, did you feel, what would, if I say the word mentor versus professor? Yeah. Okay. Can you tell me how they're similar and how they're different in your life and what you've experienced as a student? I think that's crazy is I never took a class from Lars. So he uh-huh. was never my teacher or professor, but he was, he was my mentor. Like we worked so closely together mm-hmm. on so many projects. And, and mm-hmm. the coolest thing is that last summer, right before I was going to grad school, he just, he just set me loose. He's like, Hey, here's a project. Let's try this out. It was using basketball data. Mm-hmm. And even though that project didn't work out, it was because of that project that I was able to write the paper with Justin Wolfers because about MBA referees, because I was already working with data as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. So I knew how the data worked because of this work with uh, Lars. And so that was a real eye opener. The other thing I loved with Lars is I'd always tell him research ideas. Yeah. uh, And always listen. And uh, 
he'd, he'd almost always say, oh, you know, someone's already published that. And he said, you go, you should go look at like Sandy Black's paper, which was one of them I remember. And I went and read her paper and she published it just like two years before. And I remember, uh, and he'd always say it like, oh, that's too bad. You came up with an idea that like, that you can't publish because someone's already had it. But for me, in my mind, it was always like, I'm only two years behind the frontier. Yeah, um, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, I had this idea just, you know, Sandy beat me by just two years. Like, right, right. Granted, I know now that she probably started the project, you know, these things take time. But in my mind, it was like I was two years away from the frontier yeah. as an undergrad. And that was that was just really exciting. Wow. Wow. That was like a birth order paper? Or what was it? No, it was one of her other papers. I, I think it was it was like her school discontinuity paper. It was one of her ed uh, papers. Yeah. I see. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you're getting excited. You're even though uh, so that that's a so so when you think of somebody being your teacher versus somebody being your mentor, how would you explain to somebody that's not in econ what's the difference between those two? I think I mean, a big part of it is the longevity of it, mm. which is you know we have our teacher and then we move on to other classes and they're no longer our teacher. Whereas wow. Lars was my mentor for two years, mm -hmm. and actually I was grateful to have him as a mentor and not a teacher. Yeah, because it's yeah. helpful to have an advocate. The hardest thing about the teacher-student relationship is at the end of the day, the teacher has to evaluate you. Yeah. And that can be a high stakes evaluation. Right. And so it's hard to be vulnerable in that relationship. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a mentor relationship, it's a little different because they have a real vested interest in my whole, my whole self. Right. Not just myself in their class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. So you've benefited from Lars being your mentor. Oh, yeah. And... uh and so you decide to, how quickly after you graduate, are you thinking, I definitely want to um, become a uh, professional economist? Is it pretty quick? Oh, right away. I mean, uh, even before I started working with Lars, I knew I wanted to get a PhD in economics. Mm. And I knew I wanted to be a professor at BYU. Oh, you wanted to come back? And so my whole goal was, that was my goal. Yeah. It seems like Brigham Young, not to get on a side quest here, but it, Brigham Young seems like such a special department. Um, it doesn't have a PhD program. It's a religious school. And yet its faculty uh, essentially are constantly publishing extremely high impact papers across a lot of fields. And it's not just a fluke. It's, it's always been that way. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. Can, can you tell me a little bit about what the, the secret has been? Or is, you know, is that just like a plan? Is that planned? I mean, it seems like it has to be planned. It would say here's a couple parts of the secret that like any place could replicate. We have a really high level of collegiality. Mm. Like what I would say is like a real sense of fellowship with each other. Mm. Uh, such I, I enjoy coming to work. I almost never miss a day of work. Um, meet lunch together. Uh, there's kind of open door policy where I can talk to people. I enjoy. So I, I guess I just, they've created a place where I really enjoy coming to work and being at work. Mm. I think that's part of it. I also, we're very student centered. And so there was a moment when I almost left BYU and I got to meet with the president of the university here at BYU. And that conversation really helped me see that BYU is about creating the next generation of economists. And I, I think like when that becomes your focus, then it makes being good have a purpose. It's not just mm. that I want to have an awesome CV. It's I want to be good enough that I can actually have the things to offer to the next generation. And that that so that kind of mission fit focus on students is, I think, a, another part of why mm. we work so hard. What do you think that when you say that you sort of have a sense of like mission about producing the next generation of economists versus what? Like, so imagine you had all of those other things you just listed, but that little piece of your vision was not there. What do you think would be different in the department? Um, maybe stop doing research earlier in your career. I mean, mm. research is really hard. And I mean, we, we have like, this is something we just have to all acknowledge is that we could wake up one morning and be like, why, why do I work so hard at research? And why do I go through all the rejection that it entails and all of the hard things you have to do? Uh, for me personally, I want to stay at the frontier mm. because of what the impact I can have on my students. Mm. 
So that's, but, but again, it's also partly that mission is like our students become my future colleagues, right? Because we're a religious school. We, we tend to hire from a lot of many of our faculty were BYU alumni. Yeah. Uh, I could see that at other places where maybe there's a real connection to the university that you might want to put a lot of effort into your students because they're, they're going to make your future department uh, even right. better. Right. Right. Yeah. It seems like Brigham Young, uh, if they are going to have, and this is what I was thinking one day is if Brigham Young is going to have a strong department of any kind, a world-class department of any kind, they have to mentor the students because as a religious school, there's, you know, there, there's only certain types of people that you can hire, which would be people that are members of the church. Yeah. So it's, it seems like, I mean, you, you, you don't have as much flexibility because you can't access a certain kind of, um, uh, non-church amazing professor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's fascinating. So there's a lot of selection, uh, on the hiring side of just bringing in people that can just, that you can tell are like that. How can you tell? I mean, how can, when y'all are on the market and you're hiring, what, what's the signal of that kind of productivity? How to tell that early on. I mean, you can ask questions like, how would you involve a student in this type of research? That yeah. Questions or what was the most important thing about your experience as an undergrad? Yeah. Those might be two questions, but. So you end up graduating, you go to Cornell. Tell me about what was it like when you got to Cornell? What Where did you sort of gravitate you know, was there lots of fields that you could have imagined yourself sort of specializing in? I'm pretty unique in that the reason I went to Cornell is because Ron Ehrenberg showed me love yeah. during the process. So, I mean, I knew my advisor before I even went to school. Like I, I went to Cornell because Ron Ehrenberg called me up. I, I still remember where I was standing when he called me. It, it kind of blew me away that a professor would take time to just talk to me. And he talked mm. to me for like an hour mm. and I made a conversation. I just felt I felt so loved that it was like a done deal. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I came to Cornell knowing I wanted to work with him. I thought I was going to be an ed researcher. Um, Why? Because, because of the work with Lars? Like the work with Lars, the work I'd done in the high school. Yeah. It's just like, like I had this, I, you know, I always found ed topics really interesting. Um, you know, Ron was doing higher ed stuff. Um, but then I guess when I got to grad school, I mean, he was, he was the, he was the ideal mentor I could have. Um, I met with him every week as part of a group. There's kind of a team of us working with him. Mm-hmm. I got that, I had that weekly experience throughout my whole time at Cornell. Mm-hmm. I went to seminars right away my first year. I kept an idea notebook. Um, but then just over time, my, my interest kind of drifted a little bit from Ed. Um, and so. So for the sake of the listener, could you tell us who Ron Ehrenberg is? Yeah, so Ron Ehrenberg's a professor at Cornell. Uh, he's a labor economist. He's he's just done amazing seminal work in, in tons of areas. So in some sense, kind of my own uh, variety of interests uh, match a bit uh, his his career as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, and I uh, but yeah, he's like one of the most uh, kind of loving, kind uh, mentors. And actually, a few years ago, we had a uh, an event where all of his mentees came together mm-hmm. and. Uh, it was just neat to see how many of us already knew each other. Uh, yeah. He's kind of created kind of a, his posterity is kind of a well-connected network. And so. Wow. Wow. Yeah. He's a, uh, I know him by reputation, but I've not met him. Um, so you receive, you continue to receive a lot of mentoring from him there. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so when you were in graduate school, what, what did you sort of gravitate towards for your job market paper? Well, I had I had two kids before I came to grad school and I had two kids while I was there. And I think I remember one day when a professor found out that I had four kids. Yeah. Maybe I had three at the time. Let's just say I had three at the time. And they said, they found out I had three kids. They said, haven't you read Gary Becker's quantity quality trade off paper? <laughs> 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 I, I, I had, I had not, uh, I probably should have, but I, I went and read it and it got me thinking. And yeah. I was trying to think about, how do parents allocate resources to their children? Mm. And this kind of um, this kind of analogy of a pie, where we you know we split the pie, it just it didn't seem to match with like how I allocated time to my kids. 
because mm. I tend like when I read to my kids, it's not like I like read to one kid and then another kid and then another kid. I wasn't actually splitting my time. I was, I was actually reading to all three of them at the same time. Ah. So dinner together. We were all around the table. Uh, a lot of um, when we'd go on hikes or talk, there was more than one kid present. Yeah. And so it just got me thinking about what does that even mean? Like what, what does it mean to split a pie when actually they're all eating the same piece of the pie? Yeah. It's not, it's like non-rival. It's yeah. Like a public good a little bit. Yeah. So, so, that, wait, so what do you go ahead? Sorry. No, that's just what got me thinking about it. And so then I was just curious and I, I noticed that since I had three kids, it was actually kind of funner to be a dad than if I had one kid, mm. um, I found it a little more dynamic. Um, I probably spent more time as a father just because, uh, I don't know, I'd be like studying. And then one of my kids would say like, dad, can you come play with us? And, and, and so I don't know if I felt like my pie was bigger because there was three of them. Mm. Um, but I don't know. And so it just got me curious about, you know, how do, how do parents spend time with kids? And then right at that time, the American time use survey came out and provided oh, a really good way to look. That was your job market paper. <laughs> this is literally yeah, so, yeah, for the sake of the, the reader. I didn't realize that was Joe's job market paper. It, this paper I want to hear him talk about is, uh, one of the most, one of my favorite papers. And I think if you go to the Journal of Human Resources, it's oftentimes listed on the site as like one of the most downloaded papers they've ever had. Can you, can you tell us just sort of the elevator pitch about that paper? Yeah, I was just curious um, how parents spend time with their kids. And I discovered two interesting facts. One is they tend to spend the same amount of time with all their kids on any given day. But as kids get older, they spend less time with their parents. So those are the two facts. And if you combine those two facts, what it means is instead of comparing kids at the same point in time by birth order, if you compare them at the same age, you get huge gaps in how much time they spend with their parents. Okay. So give me an example. How big is yeah, so like When my firstborn was, was six, so I, maybe when I had a six, a four, and a two-year-old, mm -hmm. I was reading to them like crazy, like maybe 45 minutes every day. Of the two, of like the oldest. Well, no, I was just, re I read to all of them. I'd be like reading out loud from, you know, like a Lewis Sacker book, like holes and, you know, the kids would all be there. But then as my kids got older, I've actually found that we do other things with our time. So sadly, as kids get older, we spend more time watching television together. Yeah. We spend more time driving together. Um, and so if you then compare just reading time across to your kids at the same age, yeah, you'll see big drop-offs in that activity. And it's, it's true across almost all of the human capital um, creation things that parents do to create human capital. So why is this important? This is the issue. It's like this, so you're looking at time and a person could be like, you know, uh, this is just about time use, but you've got this like larger question about inequality and, and these kinds of things. Why is this an economic question? Yeah. I mean, the nice thing is at the same time, Sandy Black had written this really great paper showing large birth order differences, uh -huh. in attainment. And there was just this kind of puzzle. Like what, what is it about birth order? And, and her paper was neat because it was saying it wasn't about family size. It was about birth order. Mm -hmm. that the firstborn actually does just as well if there's one kid, two kids, three kids, four kids. Mm. That seemed to match like that. That result seemed to match with my the way I kind of viewed the world. Mm -hmm. But then I started looking at my kids and I was like, holy cow. I was starting to see the disparities within my own children. Mm. But what it made it an interesting economic question is I was following an equity heuristic. Right to be fair with my kids but i was only being fair each day yeah and then from an intertemporal perspective i was being very unfair in fact because my you're... oldest kid was getting like two thousand extra hours yeah 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 did you so did you ever do that kind of calculation about the amount of hours of solitary hours yeah uh, i mean i couldn't do it for my own kids but in the addis data it came out to about two thousand hours difference if the first and second born are about three years apart two thousand additional hours yeah and this um, isn't even the alone time this is like during the years where you have both kids present in the home, the firstborn gets 2000 extra hours. It's a, it's a, it's a actually like having a full-time parent for an entire year. of wow. difference. Yeah. Wow. So did you link it? So the, the mode, am I right that the motivation for it is like this empirical regularity that the firstborn child tends to do better on like economic dimensions? Yeah. So I was kind of taking that as given from Sandy's right. work. Uh, and, and, and Kel and Paul. And, and so uh, I was then just saying, okay, we know this, why is it true? And I was just really curious about how parents allocate 
time. It was event. like you were trying to see if the evidence might be the the um, the mechanism might be the time use. Yeah, exactly. Had anybody offered up that suggestion theoretically? Uh, uh, Joe Hutz had a great paper about like you're really tough on the first kid as a signal to the other kids. That was like one of the models. Mm. Um, I don't know. There was a lot of. Yeah, I read like all the birth order books at the time, like Dalton Conley's book and others. Um, I don't know. I can't remember like the lens through which. You I mean, need I'm that. Sure people, yeah, I'm sure people had talked about it. I, I think it was just the Addis made it possible. You needed the American Time You Survey. You needed the American Time You Survey to do it. Yeah, yeah. What is So what do you think the, so it's like, I think to an economist, you know, you hear that when I, so this economist anyway, it's like, I hear that and I go, oh, well, then what you need to do is you need to, uh, allocate time such that the net marginal benefits are equal across every child. So then you like never spend any time with your firstborn. <laughs> you're like, you're on your own. I gotta, I gotta go read with this, this kid and get him caught up. But that, what, what, what do you think is the policy implications as you sort of learned about it? Well, I think, I mean, what you see the, here's the two biggest, like let's put human capital in one bucket and let's put television in the other bucket. Uh-huh. That, like if all you did was just ask yourself the question, like, would I have done this activity when my oldest was this age? Right. I think we would probably watch a lot less television with our kids. Yeah. And probably spend a lot more time reading and talking and playing together. Right. 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 You know, it's funny. Um, in many ways that paper is just, is, I'm going to say just, because I, I, I'm trying to think of the right word, but in many ways that paper is, is just purely a descriptive paper. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. It's not like the kind yeah. of the world we live in now where everything's got to kind of be a diff and diff or something like that. It's yeah. just like, so, I mean, what was it like on the market in, in like, it was like 06 or 07? Yeah. 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 So like, 07. what was the, what was sort of the, uh, the response by the market about, I mean, it's such an interesting discovery about a possible mechanism, but, you know, it didn't have any kind of, you don't ultimately randomize time. Right? It would never fly as a job market paper today. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean yeah. you, you nailed it perfectly. It's a descriptive paper. And that's why when people are derisive of descriptive paper, I papers, I'm like, I have the best descriptive paper at the JHR. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I mean, even at my job talk at BYU, um, you know, there was people that probably like didn't think of the paper that highly because it was, you know, not very technical. Uh huh. I like there was there wasn't an identification strategy. It was very descriptive. Um, yeah. What do you think the skill? What do you think for a paper like that compared to? Because you've done all these causal studies too. So, you know, for a paper like that, job market paper, what's the unique piece of human capital that that a person needs to have for a study like that that might not be the same human capital? for doing like diff and diff or something like that? Yeah, I guess there's two things I had going for me is I thought more about parent time allocation than probably anyone had ever done in human history. <laughs> I mean, it was what I thought about all the time. Mm. And uh, so, that, so it was just thinking through that just hard and deep and trying to relate it to other literatures. Right. And the other is I knew the Addis really well. Like- Why'd you know it so well? In, uh, <laughs> again, yeah, you're gonna learn, you know, like poor Joe gets driven by money a little bit. There was a- there was an early Addis conference that included kind of like a like a, a small prize. <laughs> so oh. uh, well, <laughs> they pay for your trip to uh, DC to present, and then I think there was like maybe like a like a five hundred or thousand dollar. So much of your life story is chasing a hundred dollars <laughs> here and a hundred dollars there, <laughs> and they like always I, work you know, out. <laughs> I was a young parent. Uh, I mean, it's. I mean, I, I got done. I got my PhD in four years, and people are like, "That's crazy. Why'd you do that?" And I was like. Yeah, I heard somebody's paying money for, uh, <laughs> for graduates. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So, so, so in some ways, but it, so this is what I'm going to ask you. It's like, uh, and I'm not wanting to put you on the spot, but it's funny that you said that what the human capital that allowed you to do that descriptive paper, you said, I'd been thinking about it a lot. Well, you could imagine somebody doing, I've been thinking about it a lot for, any kind of causal study, but it's interesting that you kind of say like that that's kind of like prized almost. Can you tell me more about why you said that? Why would that be such a special skill? Well, it's just, 
I, I mean, what I discovered was something that was sitting in front of us the whole time mm. and no one had ever seen it. Right. And, and the insight was that the equity heuristic day to day actually creates massive amounts of inequity over time. Right. And, and it was it was just sitting there in the data. But unless you were thinking about time allocation in an intertemporal way mm. and thinking about what, what it looks like day to day and what does it look like over time, mm. like it had been overlooked. And mm. so, um, so I, that's what I, I meant is I, I thought about it so much and I, I thought about it from so many different directions. And I and I was like watching it play out in my home that I knew that that one little narrow, narrow topic really mm. well. Yeah. And then I was just working with one data set and I knew that that data set uh, really, really well. And then I was lucky to be one of the first adopters of a new. Of the ATUS. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I think that something I try to, you know, um, tell people is, I mean, you know, the, the thing about a causal study is there's a, there's a particular kind of rush that you get from a causal study. You know, you sort of do feel, especially outside. Well, I mean, I've never done an RCT, but there's always this feeling of like, well, here's something that nobody knew maybe, or maybe they did or now, but they don't, but now they know it a little better. It's like, but is there an equivalent of that in a descriptive study like you did in your JHR? It's usually a really cool figure. It's a really it's like, cool figure. Yeah. So my JHR, there is one figure and I mean, it doesn't look cool, but, but that figure captures the essence of what I discovered. Mm, mm, Every mm. semester when I teach a class, I always show that figure to my students. And I just say, this picture is what allowed me to get my PhD. Right. And we joke about the fact that it's very, it's a very simple picture, but until you think about the picture the right way, you would, you would not have caught the key insight. Which that. is like the birth order and the amount of average yeah. time. That, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's like a very simple figure, but I remember the day I calculated that figure just in the data. Yeah. And then I just drew it out by hand. Yeah. When that epiphany, it's kind of like the, you know, the flash of genius is that moment when you see it for the first time, I mean, which obviously you, a well-identified study. You had to have sent this to Gary Becker and he had to have like loved it. I regret not doing that. I, I got really? to meet him once. Yeah. I was yeah. sitting on the front row when he gave a talk and I, I think I was just intimidated. Um, oh yeah. I mean, I just don't think I had the chutzpah to like do that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's like such a Becker paper. It's like oh, uh, quality, quantity, education, time use. Should have. Yeah, I should. I mean, it's just like he he and he would have looked at it probably. And he would have been like, "Yep, this is this is one hundred percent what's going on." And uh, I need I need you to come take a job at Chicago. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll call somebody. <laughs> uh, okay. So I want to talk about this new work you've been doing on these genealogy databases. Um, what is this about? What, what is this about? Kind of give me like, for the sake of the listener, what have you been working on all these years uh, and how are you going about it? Yeah. So I, I think what was unique is I, I discovered family history as a hobby. I would spend maybe 10 or 15 hours a week doing family history research, either for myself or helping other people. I just really enjoyed it. I loved mm. it. And then I was at an NBR conference and bumped into Martha Bailey. And I asked her what she was working on. And she said she was linking together all these records in Ohio. And this little light went on in my head that what she was doing felt a lot like family history for the mass, <laughs> like, a, like, like family history, but in a very automated way. Mm. I just... At that, from that moment on, I was just like, I want in, like, I want to do. Automated. So you were like by hand in some like library kind of going through a bunch of books and what is Martha doing? Well, no, I was still, I was still using indexed records. I was like attaching sources one by one, but Martha was using machine learning to actually match together like millions of people all at mm. once. Mm. And so that seemed pretty awesome. Um, but then I, I was starting, it got me thinking about, well, where does the training data come from? How do we know if it's a match? Because right. I've been doing this really careful research. Right. And so I was just wondering, can we somehow take the careful research, combine it with the automated approaches and maybe do even more? So give me an example. Like, so what 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 does training mean for the sake of the students that are listening? What what are you doing? Yeah, so imagine I go to your like your grandpa's page on family search. Yeah. Um, and I notice that he's attached to the 1940 census and the 1930 census. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that attachment maybe was done by someone doing careful research. Mm -hmm. Now I know that that person in 1940 is the same as this person in 1930. And I can give that to the machine and say, this is a true match. Yeah. And then the machine can look at the characteristics of the two people 
and try to learn how to tell if two people are the same person. You know why? So you're you're interested in, I mean, clearly you're interested in family. It goes deep inside your bones, but yeah. like, but what are you hoping to do with some, a bunch of links? What, what are you, and, and where, what, what are you doing that Martha's not doing? Well, I mean, uh, I mean, she kind of, I mean, granted, and it's not just Martha, it's like, it's Rana Bermitsky and Leah Bustan and James Feigenbaum. It's like this kind of, and uh, Jonas uh, Helgertz and Steve Ruggles. I mean, it's this revolution in terms of linking records together. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm trying to think a little bigger, like what would it look like if we linked together the entire human family? Mm one big interconnected network mm. uh, and recognizing that, you know, we have uses for that data as economists. Yeah. But the world has other uses for that data. Mm. And so if we can find a way to partner the world with the economists yeah. and do our little part, but in conjunction with this, this massive world effort to do the same thing, then I think both groups win. So like, what do you do? Like, so give me an example, like what, just to the scale of this, Help me understand what is your long-term ambition in the long run. If you were successful, what will you, what will you have created? Uh, it would be a, a family tree, a, a tree for the human family that would have a profile for each unique person that ever lived. And then that unique profile would be linked to records that we have for that person, census records, military records, death records. And then that person would be linked to each of their one hop relatives to their parents, their spouse, siblings, and children. Mm. And and because of those linkages, we could then follow people over time and we could follow families over time mm. and we could follow families as they move across the oceans and we could follow families as they go from rich to poor or poor to rich, or we can see what happens when there's an economic shock, mm. uh, maybe oil discovery in Oklahoma or maybe a, a war or a pandemic. So you're using, uh, so give me the examples of the data sets, the names of the data sets and like what, what yeah, most, exactly you're doing. Oh yeah, sorry. So mostly U.S. Census records. Okay. So uh, from 1850 U.S. Census up to 1950 Census. Uh huh. And so each row would be a unique person. Okay. And then each column would tell you which censuses they're in. And then there'd be other columns telling you who are their parents, who are their siblings, who are their spouse and children. And then with those two pieces, both linking people across time and linking them to their relatives, you could reconstruct uh, lots of things. How far back do you think is realistically that you can go before the data just gets too spotty? Probably, uh, I mean, for me, I tend to stay, I go back to 1850 usually, huh. but I, I'm pretty sure like going back to 1750 will be possible. In a lot it's of out there. That data is out there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like a, a really careful genealogist can easily take their family back to 1750 for, for many countries. Um, I mean, certainly my family goes back that, that far. But there's groups, there's countries and groups for which that's not possible. But, you know, if you're thinking about Western Europe, North mm. America, parts of South America. I could see how questions about inequality persisting over time, you know, given these like, given these basic concepts like annual rates of growth um, that you might be able to track out, um, you know, the, the growth of a family or something like that. Sure. Are there, so what kinds of questions have you worked on so far with it? Um, so I have, uh, I mean, I have that the paper with uh, Seth Zimmerman and Val Michelman about uh, students at Harvard. Yeah. And how important your social connections are in college. Yeah. So that was a really fun paper that kind of combined gathering new data, linking data, following people over long periods of time. Yeah. Some cool papers about the impact of immigration on local labor markets. Uh, some cool papers about wealth shocks that come through oil discoveries. Yeah. Uh, uh, some papers about impact of prejudice on long-run outcomes for children. Mm. Yeah, these are all kind of uh, some stuff on the inter intergenerational correlation of longevity. Mm. Mm. So this is your heart and soul right now. This is how you're, is this like your only thing you're working on or do you have, do you keep a lot of balls in the air? Yeah. Whenever projects come in, I always evaluate it through, will this advance the gathering of the human family into one large interconnected tree? Oh, really? So I mean, so that's the, that is, uh, you know, so like I still get approached about doing sports papers and I've, I, I mostly say no uh, yeah. to those, which is hard because that was a big part of my early career Yeah. or people approach me about behavioral stuff or family stuff. But really right now I look at most projects through the lens of will this help in this gathering of the human family? Mm. Uh, that, that's, that's really where my gift is at the moment. Oh, that's cool, Joe. That's really cool. Um, so I want to show you a quote real quick. Um, let me 
I'm going to show my screen. Okay. And uh, this is a, let's see, what page am I on? 287. So we'll go back. So this is uh, a paper by William Shockley. And he was, he ran Bell Labs. I yeah. think he was a Nobel Prize winner on the statistics of individual variations of productivity in research labs. Okay. So basically <laughs> what it is, is, you know, why do some scientists write a million papers? And so I wanted to show you this right here. Um, and I'm going to highlight it. And I was wondering, whoops, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind reading it um, for the sake of the, the, the reader. Sure. Yeah, it says, for example, consider the factors that may be involved in publishing a scientific paper. A partial listing not in order of importance might be ability to think of a good problem, ability to work on it, ability to recognize a worthwhile result, ability to make a decision as to when to stop and write up the results, ability to write adequately, ability to profit constructively from criticism, uh, determination to submit the paper to a journal, persistence in making changes if necessary as a result of the journal action. Uh, yeah, that's a really cool list. <laughs> okay, keep going, read one more. Read oh yeah, that. sorry. Uh, to some approximation, the probability that a worker will produce a paper in a given period of time will be the product of a set of factors, F1, F2, related to the personal attributes discussed above. The productivity of the individual would then be given by a formula such as P equals F1 times F2 all the way down to F8. So each of these factors that he just listed. Okay. So I wanted to, I wanted to get your reaction to something. So uh, the formula for those that are listening is the probability of writing a paper. Well, it's not even the probability of writing a paper. The, it would be the probability yeah. of, of publishing it. And, um, and it's the product of those eight things. And I was just wanting you to, to make a comment here. First comment is what's your reaction to the fact that it's the product of eight yeah. things and not the sum of eight things. Yeah, no, I actually love that a lot because as you look at this list, you realize these are all places where project can fail to get published. You mean um, example? Uh, I mean, let, let me think like ability to recognize a worthwhile result. Like you can imagine that, um, you think it's you think it's what you've discovered is worthwhile and it's and it's and it's not and so you could still go through those other steps but because of that that point in the process it, it's not going to get published mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, or you know the ability to think of a good problem like that's gonna that's gotta be the right from the start like like every good idea is gonna have to start from a good problem that you're working on and, mm -hmm. and then like the ability to profit constructively from criticism I see that as like one of the one of the key things you need to have is that ability to ask people to comment on your work and the ability to receive that criticism in a way that'll make it a better paper. I wonder sometimes if early on, if we even are thinking in terms of a production function, if we think of it as an additive. Yeah, possibly. Like, you if know, because really you sort of think, well, I'm, I, I am really good at coming up with good problems and I, and I, I do write adequately and they don't really realize that it, being good at seven is not sufficient. You have to be, you have to have non-zero values <laughs> for all eight of them, or it doesn't produce anything. It's kind of an Anna Karenna principle for, yeah. uh, for writing papers. So I was kind of curious, you know, I think it's kind of interesting that none of those say intelligence. And I wanted to kind of get, you know, you're obviously very smart. And if the reader, if the listener wants to, if the listener wants to um, go look at, at Joe's incredible productivity, you know, uh, you, you can, but I, I wanted to kind of ask you, these seem like skills. They yeah. might be called grit, you know, like now, but they seem like skills. And so I was wondering, you know, what is it that you find of those eight? Obviously you have non-zero values of all those eight, which one of those has worked really well for you and where do you struggle and how have you solved those struggles? Cause you've clearly solved them even if they did exist. Yeah, I mean, so actually this is one thing that's helped me a ton in mentoring my students is that every paper, I look at each of my papers. So take the birth order paper that was in the JHR which is my job market paper. I can actually think of like 20 people that had seminal ideas that made that paper work. Mm. Curry, Sandy Black, Gordon Dahl, who, who, who like, and I can actually remember the moment I was talking to them and asking them. And, and the cool thing is, you know, obviously we acknowledge them, but I get the credit. So, I mean, I basically, you know, I sit down with Gordon Dahl for 45 minutes and he gives me some amazing ideas and I get to put those into my paper. 
And so mm. my paper is like the combination of maybe 20 really clever things. Mm. And I only had to come up with a couple of them. Well, what are you saying? What's the skill that you just identified? The skill is the ability to listen and take notes mm. and to, to actually acknowledge that like really good insights can come from almost anyone you interact with. Because you're just open-minded. You have a natural tendency. You try to be open-minded and curious. Try to be open-minded. Yeah. Because for me, the, the, the paper is separate from me. Right. So right. I, I'm totally fine. If someone wants to criticize my paper, that's, that's fine because like my worth as a person comes separate from my papers. I, I've always like been able to look at them as like, a, like, like as truth, like something we're trying to discover. Right. And someone else can help me make that thing better. I'm, I'm okay with that. I mean, it still hurts. We're, I mean, it's the hardest thing about our profession. I think is the thing I most need to prepare my students for is it's a really hard profession. Like, like there are parts of our, our profession that actually can really great on your mental health. Yeah. And so keeping my paper, my paper separate from who I am as a person has been really helpful. How do you do that? What practices have allowed you to be able to hold something that's really important to you that you love, but not quote, it be your identity. What do you, what, what helps you do that? You know, I think it helps. I don't actually think I'm that great. I, I mean, I actually, I, I look at other people and I, I see them as so much better at econometrics than me or, or so much better at coming up with an identification strategy. So there's always a part of me, I, I don't know, I guess some people call it imposter syndrome. I, I, I've never thought of it as imposter syndrome. It's more been like an acknowledgement of the fact that I'm who I am. And I, I've been like, I've had an amazing life. Like I've, I've been blessed in so many lucky ways along the way and had so many people help me. Mm-hmm. And then I just acknowledge that like, I still need that help from other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really cool now that I, I can see my students as part of that process. I have 60 research assistants Mm. And they're so talented and I don't, I don't have to feel like I have to be better or smarter than them and everything. Right. Uh, especially now that I have computer science students and applied math students, they can do things I cannot do. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? That in that list of eight things, econometrics does not show up. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, like, it's obviously very, very important and like doing really well on your prelims is very, very important. And being, you know, working hard is very, you know, to get smarter and smarter is very important, but it's like, if those other eight things are not there, all eight of them, it doesn't yeah. matter how great you are in these yeah. things. You've got to, and so trying to, you know, and it's interesting that you write, you say the ability to profit constructively from criticism, determination to submit the paper to a journal, persistence in making change. It's, it's funny, a lot of these are probably have allegories to just everyday normal struggles, being separated from your, you're, you're not finding your identity in the stuff that you do. It's very hard when you love the things you do, you know, but, um, okay. So, so I want to conclude here. If you could go back in time to that young kid, uh, in high school and you could give him any advice, all right. Of anything that, that, that you think you now would like that young man to hear, what would you tell him? Say, um, people are more important than projects. Mm. I was a, I was a very busy young man and I was always focused on projects. Mm. And I guess what I've discovered in my life is actually it's been the people who have been absolutely critical to my success. Mm. So I, like, I wish I would have started doing that earlier. Like, mm. like here's an example in college, I didn't, I hardly ever studied in a group. Mm. Go back and say like, like the people you study with in college are going to be some of your most important colleagues for your whole life. Mm. So that's, that's what the PhD program gave me is I was so, I was hammered so hard that first year that I absolutely needed a study group. Right. Study group became my support. And and that just made me want to do that in other aspects of my life. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. You have to many, yeah. You know, I don't think that's always the mess, the, the message that we get maybe from our, from the world that we live in, it, it does not necessarily say that people are more important than the projects. I think, I think it's something you have to do. You have to decide and kind of swim against the tide a little bit to, to say that. Well, Joe, it is always so wonderful to, to meet with you and talk with you. And I hope that we get to run into each other again. I always love seeing you every year at the conferences. Hey, thanks Scott. Uh, okay. Bye-bye. Yeah, I need you.